As you heard in the video announcement, we're, in, we're back in school this summer, ethics in room 21C. So those of you who are students, I apologize to you, but uh, we're going to have a good time this summer learning from God's instruction through Moses in the book of Exodus. Ethics in room 21C, what are we talking about? Room 21C is the room of the 21st century, the room within which we all live. And ethics, of course, it refers to those moral principles that guide our behavior, that help us decide what we should do in difficult situations. They're based on our understanding. Those principles are based on our understanding of right and wrong, of virtue and vice, of justice and crime. So ethics essentially helps us understand how we should live in this day in a very practical way. The cover of a recent issue of uh, Maclean's, the July issue, read as follows. Join the compassion revolution, or we're all doomed. There's an urgent call for more compassion as the last gasp remedy for systems at the brink. Politics, healthcare, the planet itself. Then a question. But do we even have it in us? So we face critical decisions... There are real challenges in our day. We need to reach out in love, but do we have it in us? In February, the article goes on to talk about an incident that happened in Ontario in February of this year. Um, People living in Ontario, they received an amber alert. uh, Noticed that uh, an 11-year-old girl had been abducted. And Canadians were then shocked to see that many people turned to social media not because they were concerned about that 11-year-old girl, but because they were so disturbed because they'd been awakened at night. So are we that self-centered? Do we have what it takes to love in our day? In the Gospel of Matthew, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and asks him a famous question. Matthew chapter 22, verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what Jesus is saying essentially is that the whole Old Testament, it rests on these two commandments, to love God and to love the other. In essence, Jesus is making a summary statement of the Ten Commandments, what the Hebrew people called the Ten Words, and that's the way we'll refer to them. Everything that we read in the Law and the Prophets can be summarized by what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. The ten words, they grow out of our love for God and love for one another. But do we have it in us? Do we have it in us to love? As a society, we face significant challenges. We have to make decisions that will have long-term ramifications in almost every area that we can think of. Business ethics, social ethics, bioethics, medical ethics, machine ethics... The last edition of The Economist has a question on the cover. Uh, Will your job be replaced by a robot? How do we live in the 21st century? Every individual in this room faces significant choices that will have long-term 
ramifications. Well, to understand the ten words in Exodus chapter 20, we need to understand the story behind the ten words. We just went through a series on chapters 1 through 3 of Genesis, Origins. And we saw there again that God created man and woman in his image, created to love God, created to love each other, created to walk as one, as man and woman, created to walk in God's presence, created to rule over creation, created to be fruitful and multiply. And even though Adam and Eve had been created with such dignity, they thought it would be better if they went their own way. And so they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for the first time, they experience evil. For the first time, they experience the effects of sin. For the first time, they experience shame before God and one another. Adam and Eve, they fall from grace. And human beings, since Adam and Eve, they live broken by sin, separated from God, separated from one another. People presenting and messaging, trying to cover their frailty, trying to cover their weakness, uh, living what we call today the imposter syndrome, where we try to present an image, always afraid that somehow people will eventually discover who we truly are goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In chapter 11 of Genesis, the people of Babel on the plain of Shinar, they build a tower that's a statement of their independence of God. And God, in his mercy, he confuses their language, he scatters the people, and then at the end of that chapter, he finds a man who hears his voice and obeys, and his name is Abraham. Through the descendants of Abraham, God will reach out to all peoples of the earth in grace. God's desire is to bless all peoples on earth through Abraham. Sometime later, the descendants of Abraham, it's actually Abraham's grandson Jacob, who takes his family down to Egypt because there is a famine in the land of Israel. And they are received there by Pharaoh. They're in the land of Goshen within Egypt, and it's like the Garden of Eden for them. They are fruitful. They multiply. But another pharaoh comes to power who does not know the God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, does not know what Joseph did for the land of Egypt, how God preserved the Egyptians and the Israelites in a time of famine. As we open the book of Exodus... Abraham and his descendants, they they now number two million. And the Pharaoh who was ruling Egypt at that time sees them as a threat. Pharaoh, he is the (laughs) ruler of the greatest superpower of the day. He believes that he is the representative of God on earth. He believes that he's the son of the supreme God. He believes that he can bless and curse. He believes that he can determine what is right and what is wrong. He believes that he has the right to kill innocent children. He has a a serpent goddess in his crown. He speaks the language of the serpent. And so he decides that he will submit the people of Israel to enforced labor. And then, because that is not enough, in his mind, he decides that he will kill all male children of the people of Israel. So for the people of Israel living in Egypt, it is no longer a land of plenty. It couldn't be any farther from the Garden of Eden. 
A hostile ruler is attempting to commit genocide. But God, God hears the cries of his people and he remembers. And when God remembers, he's ready to act. Exodus chapter 2, verse 25. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Another translation would be God looked on them and made himself known to them. God chooses a leader, Moses. Moses becomes a man who hears the voice of God, who obeys his voice. God reveals his personal name to Moses, Yahweh. That means the almighty God who is present to save. And that is a gift. Moses, he goes to to Pharaoh with Yahweh's message. Pharaoh is to let the people of Israel go. But how does Pharaoh respond? Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so nine plagues are sent by Yahweh as messages to Pharaoh and the people of Israel. And of course, this is a message as well to the people of Israel. The Nile is turned into blood. There are flies. There are gnats. There are lives, there's livestock dying, boils, frogs, hail, locusts, darkness. Nine plagues. They're not just random acts. Each plague is a visual demonstration of the fallacy of the Egyptian belief system. God is bringing down the gods of Egypt. The whole Egyptian pantheon is being brought down. It's being shown to be fraudulent, to be foolish. You see, the central purpose of the plagues is so that the people of Israel and the people of Egypt will know God for who he is. Whether Pharaoh likes it or not, he may see himself as the center of Egypt. He may think that the whole kingdom exists just to serve him. But whether he likes it or not, God is writing a story. He's revealing himself to his people. But Pharaoh, Pharaoh refuses to listen. His heart is hard. And so a tenth plague is sent. The instruction is that a perfect lamb, a Passover lamb, is to be sacrificed, and the blood is to be painted on the doorpost. The people of Israel, hearing that word through Moses, they paint the doorposts of their homes. If the doorposts are painted, the angel of death will pass by, and the firstborn will not be taken. And so, on the first night of the Passover, when the angel of death comes by, the Hebrews that have the blood painted on the doorposts of their homes, the angel of death passes over. The firstborn is saved. That first Passover points to this Lord's Supper that we just celebrated. It's a foreshadowing of this Lord's Supper where Jesus, our Passover lamb, goes to the cross and dies on our behalf. His blood is shed so that our sins might be passed over. The Egyptians do not paint the doorposts of their homes. When the angel of death comes, their firstborn die, and so like never before, there's a cry across all of Egypt, from the palace of Pharaoh all the way to the dungeons of the captives. There's a cry because the firstborn dies, and Pharaoh, he finally relents. He commands the people of Israel to leave. Now we need to remember that God is doing much more than executing judgment on the Egyptians. He's revealing himself. He's setting his people free from slavery. He's calling a people to himself. They walk out 
in large number, the book of Exodus says a mixed multitude. Another translation is a large and motley group. Another translation reads an ethnically diverse group. A foreshadowing of who we are today as the church. They walk out in the Lord's timing. The scriptures say it was a night of watching, a night of keepings. God keeping his word as he always does. God keeping his word to Abraham, to Moses, to the people of Israel. God leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, a cloud-like pillar before them, a pillar of fire at night, a dark cloud in the sunlit bright day. God's presence among them. A tangible, palpable manifestation of God's presence among the people of Israel. A comforting presence. The same presence that appeared when Moses appeared, well, sorry, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush. The same presence that we see appearing at Pentecost. God's comforting, powerful, manifest presence. The people of Israel, their shepherd, Yahweh, leads them out of Egypt. They're on the way to Sinai, but they must pass through unknown unknown territory. They must pass through the wilderness. And on the way, of course, they come to the Red Sea. Pharaoh, he repents for his decision to let the people of Israel go. And so he races after the people of Israel with his best officers, his horses, his chariots, intent on enslaving the people of Israel again. The people of Israel are before the Red Sea. The army of Egypt is racing towards them, and it appears that it's all over, but God. That cloud-like pillar moves from before the people of Israel and positions itself between Israel and the encroaching Egyptian army. Through the night, the Egyptian army cannot move. In the wee hours of the morning, Moses, obeying God's voice, he stretches out his staff over the waters of the Red Sea, and there's a rushing east wind, and the waters separate, and the people of Israel walk through on dry ground all the way to the other side. The Egyptian army, seeing what has happened, they race down into the sea bottom, but there their forces panic. And again, Moses on the other side, under God's instruction, reaches out his staff again, and the waters close and engulf the Egyptians. A mighty act of deliverance. And the people of Israel on the other side now burst into song. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. A song for the ages. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. As Yahweh judges Pharaoh and the Egyptians, he's proclaiming the good news. The good news that he is Lord over all things. The good news that all things are in his hands. The good news that Pharaoh does not have the power of life and death in his hands. The good news that God is the one who has life and death in his hands. God is the one who rules over the waters. God is the one who is mighty to save his people. God is the one who is there to fight on behalf of his people. Later in their journey, God will pass before Moses and say this to Moses about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and 
faithfulness. So here is something very, very important. The foundation for how we are to live in the 21st century, it's all based on who God is. Yahweh's revelation of who he is. God's self-disclosure. That's where it's founded. That's where it's based. The way that we are to live, it grows right out of who God is. So, to live as God wants us to live, we must know who he is. We must know who God is. We see an example of a prayer of a person, an ancient prayer. It's called the prayer to any God. Pastor James referred to this prayer a number of weeks ago. But listen to it. Oh God, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great are my sins. Oh goddess, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. I do not know what wrong I have done. It's a person praying. The person knows that he has done something wrong and wants to fix it but doesn't know who he should pray to, doesn't know what should be done. It's a tragic prayer. It's a tragic circumstance. And that's why we need to understand that God's revelation of himself to the people of Israel, to Abraham, to Moses, to the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt, to the people of Israel as they walked with God, the revelation through Jesus, all of that, just a tremendous gift, not a burden. Through the Exodus, the people of Israel, they came to sing, my father's God is my God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my God. You see, to live as God wants us to live, our faith must be personal. Our faith in God must be personal. It must be my faith, your faith. God has revealed himself to me, to you. And so we understand who God is and our relationship with him is personal. God doesn't just download a set of do's and don'ts, 10 words, 10 commandments. Okay, do this. Try your best. Do it. No, the call to live in a certain way, it comes out of a relationship with God. It begins with God revealing himself to his people. It begins with God saving his people from slavery. God calling people to himself, saying, belong to me, you're my people. And when we understand who God is, and we understand how he's called us to live, then we understand our purpose. Our faith in God must always be personal. It's such a tragedy when we look at God's word and we see it as just a list of do's and don'ts. Just a legalistic, lifeless framework. It was never intended to be that way. God reveals his purpose to the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 19 verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. Israel, I've carried you. I've drawn you to myself. Israel, I've called you to be my treasured possession. That word, it was used by kings for their most treasured possession. You're my unique and special treasure. All the earth is mine, but I've chosen you. And that's what God says to each one of us who follow him. That's our identity, treasured possession. 
I've chosen you from all the nations, but not only from the nations, also for the nations. You're never to be a people that just lives for itself. No, you are to be my representatives on earth. That's what's behind sending out mission teams. We go to proclaim the goodness of God. How will the people of Israel do this? Verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's their new identity. Now remember, these are Hebrew slaves. For some of them, all they have known is slavery. Their identity, their self-understanding, their way of viewing life, it has come from the Egyptians. How will they now represent God? How will they live in a new way? Well, God speaks to them and tells them who they are. A kingdom of priests. As they preserve God's word, as they preserve it and keep it and cherish it, the nations will read this word and come to an understanding. As they hear this word and live it out, the nations will look and say, oh, that's who God is. That's how we are to live. To live as God wants us to live, we must understand who God has called us to be. Every calling, sorry, every disciple of Jesus has the same calling. If we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter, he uses the same language for disciples of Jesus. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To be Yahweh's priests, we need to hear God's word. How will God speak to his people? Well, the people of Israel, they stand before Mount Sinai. They've come through the Red Sea, journeyed through the wilderness. They're now at Mount Sinai, and there is thunder. There's flashes of lightning, the sound of a trumpet. The people take their stand at Mount Sinai. They're trembling, and then the mountain begins to tremble, and the experience it intensifies. The sound of the trumpet moves towards them. Smoke engulfs the mountain. The sound gets louder and louder, and when the atmosphere is electric with Yahweh's presence, he speaks. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. The first word, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you see where God begins? He goes back to who he is and what he has done, bringing the people out of Egypt. The ten words, they have a story behind them. They begin with God's grace, with his love, with a calling to relationship. The ten words never began just with a cold set of commandments. It all began with Israel's salvation from slavery, with an act of grace and love. And our relationship with God begins in the same way. God comes to Israel and says, hey, now I've come to you. The next step, it belongs to you. Will you be loyal to me? I've revealed myself as God. I've invited you into a personal relationship. Will you worship me? And every ethical decision we make starts there. It begins with our answer to that question, whom will we worship? If I've placed myself at the center of all things the way that Pharaoh did, it will guide every decision I make. But if I worship God, 
and see him as the only true God, worship him, understand who he is, then my decisions will be based on who he is and what his purposes are. The second word, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or anything that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We're not to make images. Any image we would ever make of God would be much less than he truly is. Our attempts to make an image of God are always an attempt to make a God like ourselves, to make a God that we can contain, that we can control. God is far beyond anything that we can imagine. Idolatry, well, it is that expression of our worship, of someone or something other than God. What happened in Israel because of their idolatry? Well, the list is long. There was social injustice. There was exploitation of the poor. There was marital infidelity, sexual promiscuity, drunkenness. The list is long. And whenever we see those vices present in any society, it is the fruit of idolatry. It happens because idols are being worshipped. The third word, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The name of Yahweh, it's a gift. It carries the message of who he is. All that we say and do must be in honor of who he is. The fourth word, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. That commandment based in creation, we read just a little later, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is good news. As God's people, as his representatives on earth, we can rest and worship All of life depends on him, every breath. God calls us to rest. We're his beloved sons and daughters. He cares for us even while we sleep. So the fourth word, to remember the Sabbath, it's the hinge point of the ten words. We really have a hard time keeping the first three words if we don't take time to rest. And it's almost impossible for us to practice the last six words if we don't take time to rest. Sabbath, it's that incubator where we contemplate what a God-honoring life would look like. So to live as God wants us to live, we must spend time in his presence. The first four words, they teach us how to love God. What does it look like to keep in a relationship with God alive? The last six words, they teach us how to love others. How do we live out this way that God would have us live? Let's read the last six words quickly. Exodus chapter 20, verse uh, 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land of the Lord your God, that, that the Lord your God is giving you. What an important word for our day. We'll look at that next week. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is 
your neighbors. There's a gift. God sets the framework for us. His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in the coming weeks, we'll look at some very practical things. Relationships, family, finances, speaking the truth, the value of life. To, vet, to live as God wants us to live, we must embrace his ethic of love. Those ten words are God's gift to us. But again, the question, do we have it in us to love? Let, we end, let me end with a story. A story that is, continues to happen far from here in Burundi. Burundi is known as one of the hungriest nations on earth. Half of the people live below the poverty line. Asana, a young woman, she was living on the streets, begging, scrounging for food, eking out a survival. She was invited to a discipleship group, and she wondered whether or not she should go. She said to herself, will I be judged? Will I be accepted in that group? But then she thought, okay, actually, I have nothing to lose. And so she went. And there she heard the beautiful news that God exists and that God loves her. She learned about Jesus. After some time, she surrendered her life to Jesus, discovered that Jesus wanted her to be her Savior, her Lord, her friend. Having found new faith in Jesus, her life was filled with hope. The Holy Spirit came to indwell her. At that group, she received a small amount of money, enough to buy a bag of charcoal. She broke up those pieces of charcoal into hundreds of pieces and sold them at a small profit. With the profit, bought some chickens and a goat. Now, Asana now had a new understanding of who God is, a new self-understanding. Her eyes were opened not only to her own needs, but the needs of those around her. So she decided to give some of the chickens away. She started to share her newfound faith in Jesus with others. People that she had been begging from were now coming to her for help, for hope. Asana also quite often goes to the local hospital. It's a dirty, desperate place. But she goes there to care for bedridden strangers. She goes there to wash those who have no one to help them uh, take a bath. She even spends nights in the hospital caring for the sick. God has transformed her life. How does Asana, in her poverty, have what it takes to love? Well, Asana can reach out in love because she knows who God is. Because she knows who Jesus is. She has met her Savior and Lord. She has a relationship with God that's personal. The Holy Spirit abides in her. And so now under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, she takes the little that she has and shares it with others. A life transformed by God. She's living out the ethic of love, loving God and loving others in the midst of poverty in Burundi. I find her example inspiring. But that which she lives, that reality, 
That is what God has for each one of us. To know God personally. To understand who he truly is. Understand who we're praying to when we pray. To have that deep, intimate, personal relationship with God. To spend time in his presence. To have an understanding of who he has called us to be. And then live that life full of joy. Because God has not only called us to something, he has sent his Holy Spirit to abide within us and empower us to live it. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, we... Thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your presence among us by your spirit. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And Lord, may we understand, oh God, deep within our souls, what a gift that is. To know who you are. To know that we have salvation in you. To know who you have called us to be. And so, Lord... May we this day worship you and you alone. May we keep our eyes fixed on you. May we walk in the fullness of your Holy Spirit. As we see others around us this week, oh Lord, may we be led by your Holy Spirit to love them, to care for them, to pray for them, to do what you call us to do. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.